Turn in your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 uh, will be in verses 7 and 8. It's just uh, 7 and 8. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Um, I was trying to you know, conjure up a, an illustration or a story to begin uh, the message today, because I usually finish the sermon and then kind of come back, and I don't want to, I don't want to frame this, and I was reminded of a story, a really short story that Jesus told. Uh, Matthew records it in one verse in Matthew thirteen forty four. It's a little parable. It's a story. And, and Jesus told it like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found, then reburied, and then in his joy goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. Right, So you have here a parable that assumes that until this guy found this treasure of the kingdom, that up until that point, he was enjoying all that he had. So he, he was content, he had all that he had, he was enjoying it. But when he came across this treasure in this field, which is the kingdom of God, this guy discovers something that awakens within him that this treasure is far more valuable and far more enjoyable than what he has, so much so that he considers it all not helpful, not needful, not necessary, and gets rid of all of it so that he can have this one thing that he knows is worth all of his life. Uh, Thomas Chalmers was a a Puritan uh, scientist, actually, and scholar. And he called this the expulsive, cool word, expulsive, like gets rid of, the expulsive power of a new affection. And because he was a scientist, he would use illustrations that I am not prepared to demonstrate because I'm not a scientist. But if I put a jar here, an empty jar, it wouldn't technically be empty. What would it be full of? Air. Air, That's right. Now, how do you get the air out of the jar? Somebody said water. Who said water? Who said water? It's, it was obviously one of the Weston Wax children. That's right, yes. It's a, you create a vacuum, and the easiest and most complete and thorough way to expel air out of the jar permanently is to fill the jar with water. Water is an expulsive power, and it is the new affection of the jar. And what Thomas Thomas was trying to say is that if we are going to grow in our affection for Jesus Christ, grow in our love, grow in our faith for Him, then we will have to train our hearts to find Him as the greatest treasure. And as we fill our hearts with Him, it will expel sin from our life. It is to love Him more and sin less. Make Him your affection. That's what Jesus was saying in Matthew 13. It was this man saw this treasure in a field. He recognized the kingdom of God for what it was, and he got rid of everything in his life to own it. What we have in our text today, Matthew, excuse me, Philippians 3, 7 through 8, is effectively the personal testimony of a man like the one in Matthew 13. He got rid of all that he once discovered, and he got rid of everything once he discovered Jesus. So stand with me. Let's read Philippians 3, 7 and 8 together. A quick stand, but a powerful punch. 
Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to show you just a couple of things today uh, in, in, this, in this text that I think will be very, very helpful um, and hopefully inspiring and encouraging to you. Um, and the first thing I want to show you is righteous loss. Righteous loss. Look what Paul says in verse 7. Everything that was a gain to me. So Paul is showing us that anything that we depend on to be right with God other than the life and work of Jesus is a liability, not an asset. Anything that you would add, anything that you would trust, anything that you would bank, anything that you would count, anything that you would lean on to make you right with God other than the life And person and the work of Jesus Christ is a liability. It is not an asset. Because Paul says that everything that was a gain to me. And what's interesting about this passage is it allows us to get into Paul's mind and understand what it took for him to believe in the gospel. What what was gain to him? What was he enjoying? What was he treasuring? What was he valuing before he came across Christ? And the answer is back in verses 5 and 6, right before the verses we read. Look at your Bible in verses 5 and 6. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrews. And regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. All of the things that were gained to Paul were wrapped up in his Jewishness and his expression of that Jewishness through his obedience to the law. Everything that was a gain, everything that was important, everything that Paul counted on for his identity and for him making himself believe that he was right in his position with God was all in his Jewishness. So look, break down this list. Look at the first one. Circumcised the eighth day. So without going into too much detail, circumcision is the right which introduced Paul to the outward expression of the covenant with Abraham. It was the physical identification that he was a Jew. And he says it was performed on the eighth day as ordained by the law. It wasn't later like an adult convert. It wasn't a few days off because of travel or because of illness or because his parents couldn't get it scheduled right on time. No, it was right on time on the eighth day as required by the law. Paul bore the mark to the outward world of the covenant of Abraham according to the law. And then he says, I'm of the nation of Israel, which Paul means here is that his genetic lineage was absolutely pure Israelite. And this was a real point of pride for him. This is a, a statement that infers that he knew this to be true, that he could factually prove it or demonstrate it through a genealogical trace. Before 23andMe, Paul had some other means of guaranteeing to him and everyone else in the, that might ever ask, he was a nation of Israel. You could not be more Israelite than Paul was. 
And then he says, not only that, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew-born Hebrews. So if you, if you go back to the Old Testament, Moses, um, Moses called the tribe of Benjamin as the one that was beloved of the Lord. The ancient temple was built where the tribe of Benjamin resided. The first king of Israel was chosen from the tribe of Benjamin. Do you remember his name? Do you remember his name? Who was the first king? Saul. What, was Paul's other, what other name was Paul known as? Saul, right? Paul has even named after him. So Saul, Paul, Saul, was not only a pure Israelite, but he came from the most special and beloved tribe of all Israelites, and that made him a true Hebrew of Hebrews. He's the goat. He's the goat. Only he's not, you know, you understand how there are some religious problems with that as a Jew, but he was the goat. He's the greatest of all time when it came to Judaism. Regarding the law, he said, I'm a Pharisee. Paul belonged to a sect of Jews in which that was attached to the highest level of importance to the most minute details of the law. Paul was the one who went to the extreme among all of the extremists. He was the one who initiated um, into the innermost secrets of the faith. This guy knew it and he lived it. And regarding zeal, in terms of his enthusiasm and his passion for it, there's one thing to know it, it's another thing to live by it. Paul says, I persecuted the church. He was so full of zeal and enthusiasm for Jewishness and the law that if you appeared to speak against the law of Moses by declaring the gospel then you were an enemy. And Paul hunted you down with all of his might as we've read through the stories of the book of Acts where he did so. So Paul was so self-righteous that he sought to kill anyone who declared righteousness of Jesus as a means to salvation. That's just how Jewish he was. And then finally Paul says, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. Paul finishes by saying that he himself was as to every detail of the law, every little point of the ritual, every particular aspect of it, according to that, he was blameless. This was no small thing to say, but it was true. It was true as best as anybody could tell. It was true before and keeping the law. He was blameless. So all these things, Paul says... My circumcision, being of the nation of Israel, like a true, legit Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, blameless in keeping the law, zeal, persecuting the church, that was to my gain. It was who I was. My bank account was full of what it meant to be a Jew. It was all a gain. So think of this in business terms, right? So let's pretend that we're in the business of righteousness, And the more holy and the more moral and the more obedient and the more zealous we are about all of that, that means we're more successful. So if righteousness were a business, Paul would be Google. He would be Apple. He would be the picture of what, of how one could be right before God by his own effort. He was the first Jewish unicorn, right? Nobody earned more in good works. Nobody had better mechanisms for earning more profit. His bank account was full and it was earning compounded interest. He was loaded in self-righteousness. And Paul says in verse 7, But everything that was a gain to me, verse B, I have considered to be a loss. Verse 8. 
because of Christ. See, Paul found that all of his earthly advantages, and they were many, they were impressive, they were valuable by anyone's estimate, Paul found that all of that Jewishness, all of that righteousness, all of that goodness, all of that morality, all of that zeal, all of that obedience, it's the kind of, kind of guy you want your daughter to marry, you understand. He's a good man. All of that, all of that was actually a liability to know Christ. He considered it once he saw Jesus. Once he saw who Christ was, he looked at all the things that he banked on for his identity and for his declaration that he and God were good, and he compared it to Jesus, and he said, this stuff has got to go. I consider it once again. Nope. It's a loss. It's a liability. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. With respect to Christ, those things which were naturally an advantage became a disadvantage because their tendency had been to keep him from trusting Christ. And their tendency still was to tempt him away from simple faith in Jesus. Paul is saying, he's saying that because he banked on being an Israelite, he rejected Jesus. Because he banked on being of the tribe of Benjamin, he rejected Jesus. Because he was banking on being excellent in keeping the law, he didn't need Jesus. And therefore, to have Jesus, Paul had to consider his Jewishness and his obedience and his zeal and all those things as a loss, as a minus, as a liability. Again, Spurgeon, it is a grand thing to have led a virtuous life. It is a matter for which to praise God and to have been kept in the very center of the path of morality, but that blessing may by our own folly become a curse to us if we place our moral excellences in opposition to the righteousness of Jesus and begin to dream that we don't need a Savior because of our own moral excellence. If our character is, in our own esteem, so good that it makes us passable... Therefore, we would reject the robe of Christ's righteousness. Then it would have been better for us if our character had been of our own confession, a mass of rags, for then we would be willing to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus instead. It's terrifying, isn't it? That you can look for... Think about how terrifying this is. This is how much we need Jesus. We, we want to look for fruit in our lives as a demonstration that we are, by the Spirit, becoming more and more like Jesus. And sin is so pervasive that it can lead us to look at that fruit as something we depend on to make us right before Jesus and ultimately reject Jesus. This is why we always talk about Jesus in here and in there and in the next building. Because sin is so pervasive, we would clothe ourselves, we would clothe ourselves in our own self-righteousness and believe that that's passable and trust in it and not trust in the righteousness of Jesus. So what, what do we have to do? We have to understand 
just how beautiful and magnificent and wonderful Jesus really is. And when we do that, it will expel our faith and our trust and our own works and our own righteousness. It's an expulsive power of a new affection. Paul came to this place personally. Here's his testimony. He came to this place where he saw the beauty and the righteousness of Jesus and he compared it. He compared it to his own. And he said, this has got to go. Because it's one thing to realize just how glorious it is to live by grace through faith in Jesus. And it's another to live in that reality for a long time with great depth and, and take assessment of that transaction that's taking place. In other words, it's one thing for Paul to realize that in a moment and say, I'm going with Jesus. It's another thing to say, I've been going with Jesus for a while. Now let's, let's look back. Let's take an assessment of how, how we got here and how it's been about this transaction, about this decision. How's it been? Look at verse 8. What would Paul say about considering all of his Jewishness as loss and Jesus as gain? What would he say? Verse 8. Well, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. So you compare verse 8 and verse 7, right? In verse 7, Paul speaks of Jesus as the one for whom he counted gain as loss. But in verse 8, after living in that reality of this great transaction... Paul can't believe just how great a transaction it really was for him. For Paul, according to verse 8, Jesus was better loved because he was now better known. He's only grown in his awareness of the goodness of Jesus. And he's only grown in his awareness of the depth of his sin. It wasn't a one-time reality. As he has walked with Jesus, he now understands even more just how he made a haul by trusting Jesus instead of his own self-righteousness. Does that make sense? So we, the, 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 the key to growing as a Christian is to live in this reality again and again and again and again. It starts when you believe, right? It starts, you go, man, the Lord has opened my eyes, my self-righteousness, my rebellion, all the things that I use to reject Jesus, those things are of no value anymore. I see for the first time that His righteousness and His goodness is what I need. So I'm believing Him, I'm trusting in Him. And so in that moment, the glory and the goodness and the love of God is made real to you. And the depth of your sin is made real to you, and you trust and believe. And you start to walk in that. The more you walk in that, the more you understand just how lovely He is, and the more you understand just the depth of your sin, and therefore the more you understand just how glorious the cross really is. That's, that's maturity. It's understanding the depth of that more and more and more. The more Paul lived in the reality of this, And with the person of Jesus, the more he realized just how foolish it was to count anything as gain. That's what he means. I consider the loss of everything. All that Jewish stuff, yes. Anything I left out, that too. In fact, it's not just a loss. It was worthless. It was dung. It was something to be discarded and buried and left alone to rot. I don't want it anymore because I've got Jesus. got Jesus. Would you rather have a penny a day that doubles every day for 30 days right now? Or would you rather have a million dollars? When I was first asked that question in grade school, <laughs> I'll take the million, thank you very much. 
which was foolish because if I'd taken a penny a day, doubled every day for a month, I'd wind up with $5.4 million. It's the power of compounding interest. We foolishly, by sight or presumption, ascribe more value to that which initially sounds bigger to us initially. But when we live with it a while and actually do the accounting, we see that the other is far more valuable. So you think about in Paul's life, this is what's happened to him in verses 7 and 8. He's been offered a penny a day, doubled every day for 30 days in Jesus, or a million dollars in his own self-righteousness. And he, he did the accounting. He did it once in verse 7. He did it twice in verse 8. He did it again at the end of verse 8. And he's done the accounting, and he declares as foolishness the thing that he once considered valuable. He did the math, and it made him even more emphatic in his answer. Remember the movie Apollo 13? Tom Hanks? There's a scene where their computer's down. They're trying to get back to earth, you know, and, and, they've, and they all have to do math I want you barreling at many thousands of miles an hour toward the earth um, without any gravitational equipment, using line of sight, and they're trying to get the angle right for the, to burn the engines one last time. And so Tom Hanks is standing over this scratch piece of paper, and he's sweating profusely, and he's doing physics. <laughs> and you know, think of all the things they've been... He's doing all this physics, and he gets an answer, and he tells them what the answer is. And then they flash back to, to base, and there are physicists after physicists after astrophysicists doing the same math over and over again, and they all get the same answer. And it works. It gets them home. That's what Paul has done. He's done the math in the very beginning, and he's considered it all lost. He's done it again, and he's like, you know what? I should consider it all of it lost. And then he did it again, and he's like, you know what? It's all not just lost. It's wasteful compared to Jesus the expulsive power of a new affection. So what? What do we do? What do we do? Well, a final illustration. I want you to imagine that you are a captain of a large cargo vessel back in biblical times, and you are sailing along, and your ship is full of valuables, things that everyone in the world needs on a regular basis, salt, Spices, olive oil, fabrics, dyes, all the things, okay? Target in a boat. And you are super proud of your haul. Costco in a boat. It's nice, okay? It's nice. And you're super proud of your haul and the fact that you've been entrusted with something so valuable. You're careful. You're an excellent captain of your vessel and your cargo. And along the way, as you're sailing, you pass another ship and y'all come together in the middle of the ocean. And this ship is full of riches. It is full of diamonds. It is full of gold, rubies, emeralds, sapphires. You get the point. And the captain of that ship offers you all of his cargo. But in order to have it, you've got to discard everything that is currently in your ship. Would you do it? Yes, you would do it. 
Because you see that that ship holds something of far greater value than what your ship holds. And you see that keeping what you once thought as valuable prevents you from having what is truly valuable. So you consider all that stuff in the bottom of your ship a loss and you chunk it into the sea, making room for that which is truly valuable. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. It is to consider anything other than It is to consider everything else as loss in order to have Him. Whatever you would look to to say, when I die and I'm standing before God, I'm going to count on this. If the answer is not Jesus, get rid of it and bank on His life and death and resurrection instead. That's what we do with this text today. And keep doing it. Fight for it. Keep doing it. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for the power of the Spirit to come into our lives and as an expulsive power and give us a true affection for Jesus. Lord, we are eager to see lives changed, beginning with our own, through the belief in the gospel. So help us, Lord. Respond to your grace. Respond to your Spirit moving loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because you are the greatest treasure, the greatest value. Whatever might be in the way in the lives of the people of this congregation today, would you, Father, bring an expulsive power of a new affection for Jesus today? And may we consider anything else that we depend on as loss. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.